Let the sea make a noise and all that is in it, the lands and all those who dwell therein. Let the rivers clap their hands and let the hills ring out with joy before the Lord when he comes to judge the earth. May I speak in the name of the living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Our tradition provides us two holy books, two sacred texts to shape our spiritual imaginations. The first holy text is scripture. The Old and New Testaments containing the great story of salvation, giving to us um, the story of Jesus and his teachings, and the examples of the first of the earliest followers. The second sacred text is the book of creation. Now, we don't normally think of creation as a text, but all the elements are there. There are characters, both heroes and villains, and landscapes and family conflicts and resolutions and more bloody conflicts. And like any text or book, it's there for the reader to interpret, to try and make sense out of it, to try and discern a plot. Psalm 98 is this marvelous poem, even a hymn, celebrating both the book of creation and the narrative of salvation, as both join and give glorious witness to Israel's saving God. Sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. With his right hand and his holy arm has he won for himself the victory. Notice, first off, the joy in these lines. The psalmist bursts forth with a command, the psalmist's favorite command to give. Sing! The year is 522 BCE. And the Lord has delivered his people from exile. He's brought them back from the land of Babylon with his right hand and with his holy arm. God has won the victory. His people are no longer oppressed by their foreign master, their home. And the psalmist says, sing. To which we have to reply, it's still COVID, Mr. Psalmist. We can't heed your command just yet. Well, the joy in this psalm keeps spilling over. The psalmist takes two more verses to recount again God's marvelous deeds, God's faithfulness to God's people. And then he says, all the ends of the earth have seen the victory of our God. And that's when he peers out. He picks up the holy text of creation and says, Shout with joy, all you lands. Let the sea make a noise and all that is in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. What an image. Let the hills ring out with joy. Right in the middle of the psalm, he gives his stage instructions to the temple musicians. Come on, guys, grab the harp. Pick up the trumpets. Let's get the horn section going. We've been invited to join in with creation in praising God. But we Christians, for the last 250 years or so, 
haven't done a very good job at praising God in creation. To the contrary. In his 1967 seminal essay called The Historical Roots of Our Ecological Crisis, Lynn White argued that Christianity was an anthropocentric religion which could be blamed for our current ecological crisis. White, who himself is a Christian, accuses mainstream Christianity of using that verse in Genesis that speaks of humanity's dominion over the natural world to justify all of its Western and industrial impulses to conquer, to drill, to exploit, to chop down, to deforest, and light on fire whatever it wanted, because the Bible said it could. Pope Francis's words in his encyclical Laudato Si, we traded in a sacramental imagination, a holy imagination, for a technocratic one, one obsessed with power. And we used scripture to underwrite the whole project. Francis draws out the distinction. The sacramental imagination sees the world as suffused, as charged with the grandeur of God, just as the holy sacrament of bread and wine and their materiality signify something beyond themselves. The technocratic imagination, on the other hand, sees creation as a dead commodity to be traded and used up for consumptive purposes and ends. The technocratic imagination is truly an oxymoron. There is no imagination in it. I was in my office before the 8 a.m. service a few months back, finishing up my coffee and alas, my sermon as well, when the doorbell to the church rang. That's odd, I thought. Well, I ran out and was greeted by a man who looked as if he was going for a morning hike, stopping in for a service just before that. He asked, hey, is there a service this morning? Yes, yes, I thought. Ah, a new person. And it's in the parking lot. Yes, just right out there. We will begin in 20 or so minutes. Here's a bulletin if you'd like. No, no, just wondering if it's okay if I park in the lot while I go for a hike. To which I wanted to reply, sure, just go park right in front of that no parking sign down there. I didn't say that. I said with a smile, of course. And then he pointed out to the woods and said, my church is out there. Nice play. I bet we all have one or two friends who think this way. Organized religion, not so much. Nature is where they experience God. While many in our culture have adopted a technocratic imagination, there are many, not necessarily religious, who've consciously resisted. Many who respect the natural world, who work for climate justice and the preservation of local habitats and species. We have lots of friends who live out here in Lincoln just for this reason. 
But there can be a temptation here as well, almost the opposite of the technocratic imagination. The temptation is to over-sacralize nature, to worship it as if it's God. The word to describe this view is pantheism, which means that all things in their own way are God. In some ways, someone like Emerson, the good transcendentalist that he was, stands in this tradition. While I much prefer this way of looking at things than seeing the world as dead and lifeless, I think scripture teaches something a little bit different. Creation is not God. It has its own integrity and freedom. And plus, Christians have always wanted to say that God is love. And you can only love that which is different or other than you, not you. God lets other things be alongside himself with capacity for freedom, integrity, and relationship. So creation isn't dead and devoid of divine meaning, but it isn't straightforwardly divine either. So how do we think of the relationship between God and our world? C.S. Lewis gave us a great image of the creation in his book, The Magician's Nephew, the first in the Narnia series, actually the prequel. Diggory and Polly, the two young children, are at their uncle's house in London when they come across these magical rings, these magical rings which allow them to travel to different worlds. And they travel in time, back in time, to the origin of our world. And there they witness Aslan, the great lion, as he brings all things into being. It's pure darkness, the universe still unformed. Lewis writes this. In the darkness, something was happening at last. A voice had begun to sing. It seemed to come from all directions at once. Its lower notes were deep enough to be the voice of the earth herself. There were no words. There was hardly even a tune. But it was beyond comparison. The most beautiful voice, the most beautiful noise he had ever heard. It was so beautiful, Diggory could hardly bear it. The lion, the great lion, sings the world into being. You may know that the first chapter of Genesis, the creation narrative, is actually written as a piece of music. All the repetition, the cadence, and the verse structure with the subtle variation at the end with the creation of humanity, it's a hymnic chant. Prophets in the Old Testament perceived that God was a singer, that God's world a song. Zephaniah says, the Lord your God is with you. God will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. The psalmist this morning ask humans and creatures to sing because God sings. Creation, 
if you can imagine it, from the smallest particle to, to the distant galaxies, from the call of geese to each blossoming flower, is God's song. The song that God never tires of singing because it's rooted in God's eternal joy. Shout with joy to the Lord, all you lands. Lift up your voice, rejoice, and sing. We've largely forgotten that it's this joy that Jesus came to plant in humanity's heart. We've too much made him a savior from sin, which he is. But we've forgotten that he came to bring life and life abundantly. Jesus wasn't some dour-faced savior. Even to the end, one of my favorite verses in the book of Hebrews says, for the joy set before him, Jesus endured his cross. For the joy set before him, Jesus endured his cross. His life and teaching and self-offering were so that in the words from John's text this morning, his joy might be in us and that our joy might be complete. Oh, Jesus, the one from God, knew that all of creation was God's joyful song. And when he rose from the dead, I imagine the hills rang out and the rivers clapped. Christ's resurrection really was about all of creation singing a new song. So where does that leave us? As Christians, we are indeed called to fight for the dignity of the earth. We are to continue to seek climate justice in whatever way we can. We continue to preserve all of life at every chance we can get. We recycle and we eliminate harmful products from our lives and from our communities. We undo or reverse the dominion. Not because we are somehow heroes of the world, but because we've been drawn into the vision of Holy Scripture, because we want to preserve creation's song. Psalm 98 reminds us that creation is a holy text, a piece of music, and the joyful sound of that music. For what it's worth, I think that's the reason for church, to live out that joy, to become more and more immersed in that joy, to express that joy. We, like the psalmist, are being led out of a long exile. And we, too, shall one day sing. Amen.